Hello, that's Sarah. That's Emily. And this is Lightweight True Crime. drinking hot toddies because it is cold this it's southern california cold it rained all day okay <laughs> it, did. it did i had to like get out my giant slipper socks <laughs> heater blanket i texted emily on the way here i was like do you want me to pick up anything for dinner because we all have dinner together and she's like because because we talked about me getting dessert and she's like well I made sugar cookies. I had to turn the oven on to warm up the house. Our heater doesn't work. Your heater doesn't work at all? No. Ooh, that's rough. So we just have like a little space heater that I moved from room to the living room. Yeah. To the... Oh. What? I said his name. Oh, we keep doing that. The roommate that you rent yeah, out. Yeah, the man. The man who you rent out the spare room to, who you're very concerned about his well-being. I am. Absolutely. His in- internal temperature is fluctuates so much does your landlord know that your heater doesn't work i didn't i just figured it out today i just tried to oh, turn it on okay and also houses in southern california i feel like aren't built to withstand yeah, anything beneath 60 degrees yeah we don't have ac you don't have ac no oh my gosh what kind of calcutta is this nothing in this area has ac good lord the house was built before fans were even invented <laughs> before any type of fan was invented yeah Wow, that is ancient. Anyway, uh, anyways, this hot toddy, the hot toddy, delicious. It's like, um, it's kind of like a janky hot toddy. What does what does that mean? Because I don't, I think hot toddies are made with like apple cider or something. Oh, I just it's made with tea. Yeah, I just made these with cinnamon tea, a little bit of orange juice, like a like juice from an orange, not like Sunny D, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, some whiskey and a Sunny tea. Of honey. <laughs> This is a cinnamon tea with whiskey and um, Sunny D and Tang. <laughs> tang. Anyways, tang okay. I saved this for the show. I finished watching The Devil Next Door on Netflix. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And did I you just, watch it because I told you to? Or did, yeah. Okay. Well, so I saw the banner on Netflix and thought, I wonder what that's about. And then you told me what it was about. Oh. And I was like, okay, I got to watch it. So, for those of you who don't know, and we won't give you any spoilers, but The Devil Next Door is like a five-part documentary series on mm-hmm. Netflix, which that, I thought it was four parts. Yeah, and you texted and, me, and you're like, I still don't know. And I was like, Ugh. I texted you, and there were, I was like, I have 20 minutes left. <laughs> and then at the end of those 20 minutes, it started the like, next episode will start in five, right. four. And I was like, what? <laughs> um, so, no spoilers. It is about, um, like in 1985, a man in ohio who was an american citizen a ukrainian immigrant was arrested well arrested he was deported yeah um on war crimes uh, essentially he was being accused of being um a nazi prison guard who operated the gas chambers at treblinka which treblinka is one of like treblinka was from my from what i gleaned from this show like this was the camp you didn't return from this yeah. was like you got off the train and into the gas chambers so and it's all about how he gets sent to Israel to stand charges for war crimes and is basically basically like, this is a case of mistaken identity. Uh, and it is effing fascinating. It is. There are twists and turns. And just so when you think you many. can't twist or turn anymore, some more turns yeah. and twists. It's, it's fascinating. I just like, and I feel like in all of the documentaries about the Holocaust and stuff, they use the same like pictures and footage, but there was like, so many little clips in there that just like wrenched my soul. Like I just cannot believe that people did this to other people. Did like, have you ever been to the Holocaust Museum in Washington D.C.? No. It will f yeah. you up. It's also like a good reminder that because yeah, you know, you watch something yeah. like that and you're like, I cannot believe that people did this to other people. But the thing about mass acts of violence like that and the thing about genocide is that it never starts with genocide yeah right it starts with yeah. the um the museum 
the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles yeah. has a really phenomenal, or at least they did when I went through it, a really phenomenal like room that you go into as they talk about like the events that led up to the Holocaust, where it's like people sitting at a cafe yeah. together talking about like the Jewish problem. I've been there. It's that's a really great thing because yeah. it's like a whole like um, like there's not a tour guide. But the way that, like, they have little, like... Um, Vignettes. Yeah, yeah. That, like, light up. And then it's, like, the people talking. It's really cool. If you live in L.A., you've got to check out the Museum of Tolerance. It's phenomenal. Because, like, yeah, it, you don't go zero to 100. Like, it's yeah. all these little things that all of a sudden make it okay in your mind yeah. um, to do that to people. Which, like, like, I just feel like... I mean, it's okay. So it's a lot easier for me to say now being me and being so far removed from it. But I just feel like there's nothing that could sway me to be able to treat other people like that. Yeah. And maybe that's just my ignorance. It's so it's like, sorry, there, there was a part where the guy who's being accused, his... I think it was his son-in-law. No, no, no. His grandson. It was his grandson yeah. who said something like, well, like he didn't really have a choice. It was like... He was like, if if this was him, he didn't really have a choice. Yeah. And it was like, the way he was saying it was just like, no, he did have a choice. Like, right. Because what he was like being accused of was basically like torturing people before they went into the gas chamber, right. which was like extra credit, basically, right. in Nazi school. It was like... Yeah. All he was supposed to be doing was putting these people in the gas chamber and he went above and beyond that. Yeah. And that, like, he did have a choice. He made that decision. Yeah. And it's just, like, there were so many parts where they were like, well, it doesn't even matter why you're trying this guy. He's, like, 90. Like, right. he's old. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. So it's like a lot of people didn't reach old age because of yeah, because what of he's he, being like, accused yeah. of doing. It, not him but because of nazis right. like because they were like oh any of the nazis that are in america are really old now like let's not bother them i'm like it doesn't matter they what they did deserves to be punished right no matter where they are what they're doing how old they are right just got me all worked up I um, another really phenomenal museum in LA is the Japanese American National History Museum. And when I was working in higher education, I went with a professor, like helping take a couple of her classes to this museum. And um, the woman who gave us a tour was um, in, she was Japanese American and she was interned when she oh, was wow. um, a teenager. Yeah. And she was telling us her story, like as we went through, w moved through the museum and like kind of chronologically talking about Japanese internment, like would tell us like, okay, so this is where I started off and da da da. Like she was living with her family in Washington state. She was like 12 years old yeah. when her dad got sent away. And then like they got a notice that they that, were all going to be interned too. Oh my gosh. And it was, it, it was just, she was phenomenal, and yeah. the, the story she told us was horrifying. Um, and then at the end, she talked about how she got released from internment. She was like 17. She moved to L.A., got a job, got married, had kids, never talked about it again. And Dang. she had a son who came, her son came home from a college history class where they'd been talking about internment. It was like, Mom, like, was like doing the math, like, yeah. in the years. And he's like, were you interned? And she was like, I hadn't talked about it until then. Like, like he never yeah. talked to her husband about it, I don't think. So, like, tells him that. And so the student that I'm there with goes, oh, is that when you started volunteering at the museum? And she said, I'll never forget this. I get chills every time I think about it. She says, no, I didn't start volunteering here until after 9-11 because I didn't want my country to do to Muslims what, what they, they had done to us. That's, yeah. And it was, like, the feeling that I got and then, like, the feeling that I watched like wash over my students faces was like what you're talking about in terms of like it's very very easy to like look back on like very heinous things yeah that were removed from and yeah. be like no never in a million years you know blah blah, yeah. blah. and like hopefully that's true you yeah. know hopefully that is true of us but it, but to watch like the like the transition on my students faces from like internment was awful you know I never would have done that I never would have participated in that um to like all of a sudden being like an issue that is very much like prominent yeah. in their lives like oh 9-11 like um 
prejudice against yeah. like, the Muslim American community and like hatred for the Islamic community in general. Like that transition, like yeah. I can feel that discomfort in myself. Yeah. You know, because like you hear the voices of like families and friends yeah. who, you know, have prejudices against yeah. the Muslim community and you're like, oh, that's how this happens. Yeah. But I've never thought about it like that. But that makes so much sense that like, okay, if the Germans were thinking like the Jews are terrorists. Right. Yeah. I s- yeah. We That's, really came out the gate swinging. <laughs> I know. Welcome to... Ryan is just shaking his head. Welcome to Heavyweight True Crime. <laughs> Tonight we're going to talk about some heavy stuff. We're going to get into some philosophical conversations I know. about evil and just yeah. <laughs> human free will. I know. But <laughs> I highly recommend The Devil yeah, Next Door. The Devil Next Door. Even if you're not into true crime, I don't know why you're listening to this. Thank you, but... <laughs> like, if you're into history at all... If you're into being a human... Yes. If you're into... I implore you to watch The direction it America is going and how we might change it. <laughs> um, if you're into the way it's going, I think you should also watch it. <laughs> yes. If you're into it in a good way, you should also watch you it. You maybe reconsider your choices. Watch it. Wow. <clears throat> Serious. Yeah. Okay. Lee. Ryan... Marie <laughs> Nina Guzman. That's good because everyone's middle name is Marie. Everyone's middle name is Marie or Christine or Elizabeth. Yours is Emily. Yeah, mine's Emily. Okay. Mine is Christine. <laughs> Ryan. Actually, his sister's middle name is Christine. With a C or a K? I guess C because it's supposed to be like Christ. Well, there you go. Mine yeah. is also with a C, but it's supposed to be like Christine, my aunt, but not like Christ. Yeah. So in our notes, our show notes from last episode, our producer Ryan was like, "You really, your transitions could use some work." Um, so speaking of transitions, so speaking of transitions is basically what I'm going to say. This Sarah. podcast is oh. one in which two girls share a drink and a story, and that's what we're about to do. That is what we're about to do. With you these go first. Hot toddies in hand. I will. I will. I will go first. Thank okay. you for that invitation, Emily. You're welcome. It was more of a command. <laughs> okay, but, okay, I'll take that as well. Y'all, I cannot tell you. Wednesday and Thursday nights when I come to record here, they're the best nights of my week because I get fed, I get to do loads of laundry, I get delicious cocktails made for me. It's honestly, I'm living the high life. You get to do your nails? I get to do my nails, which I royally do them messed up incorrectly. And I tried to do it while Emily was doing other things and I should have known better. Yeah. Now they're a mess. All right. We'll any, fix them after this. Don't okay, worry. Thank you. I appreciate it. Anyway, let us talk about the story of the murder of Martha Moxley. I got a ton of my information uh, from an article in Vanity Fair called Trail of Guilt by Dominic Dunn. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Well played. Okay. Let's get into this. The year was 1975. I just want to say I've heard this name and I feel like I know a little bit, but surprisingly I don't know a ton about this. Well, just you wait. I knew nothing about this story, so this was brand new for me. So the year was 1975, and 15-year-old Martha Moxley lived with her family in the upscale area of Greenwich, Greenwich, Connecticut. Is oh, it's I know it's Greenwich Village in New York. Yeah, this is different. G R E E N W I C H. I think that's how you spell Greenwich. I'm just gonna say Greenwich, Connecticut. Why not? All right, we're cool. We're East Coast. Yeah, we're totally East Coast. Martha was just incredibly fun, says Christy. K- Callan, Martha's closest friend from that time in her life when she was 15. Though she and her family were new to the area, Martha was voted the girl with the best personality in her Western Junior High 8th grade yearbook. Junior high is so clicky, so that tells you something, said Christy Callan. So Martha and her family had just moved to this area, right, like in the last year, but she was already like super beloved and well-liked is basically the point of that intro anecdote. And on the evening of October 30th, 1975, Martha leaves her house with friends to participate in, quote, mischief night, where kids from the neighborhood would ring bells and pull pranks like toilet papering houses. I have never heard of mischief night. Is that a thing you're aware of? I feel like I've heard about it in a story about something in Detroit. Okay. So maybe it's just not a... Our generation West Coast thing. Maybe. Maybe. I don't understand why it's the night before Halloween. I don't, like, you yeah. think it would be Halloween night. But, okay, whatever. Anyways. So, she leaves her house to participate in this. According to friends she was out with that night, Martha began flirting with, and eventually kissed, a boy named Thomas Skackle. 
Skackle. Skackle. S-K-A-K-E-L. Now, the Skackle family lived in Martha's neighborhood and were cousins of the powerful and highly revered Kennedy family. They were cousins by marriage, but like they were married into the Kennedy family, which is a big deal anywhere, particularly on the East Coast in 1975. So Martha was last seen with Thomas um, around the pool in the Skackle backyard at around 9.30 p.m. The Skackle backyard. Skackle backyard. Skackle backyard. backyard. Consonants. So Dorothy, Martha's mom, expected her daughter home around 9.30 but they hadn't had a conversation about when exactly she'd be home, and Dorothy trusted her daughter, so she didn't immediately worry when 9.30 came mm-hmm. and went. Around 10, uh, Dorothy sent Martha's older brother, John, out to look for her, but he returned without having found her. Still, Dorothy didn't get super worried. Um, sometime after the 11 o'clock news, she fell asleep with the television on. Now, her concern turned to panic around 2 in the morning, <clears throat> when she woke up and went to Martha's room, expecting to find her asleep in her bed, but she yeah. wasn't there. So Dorothy begins by calling Martha's friends, right? That's the logical next step. She called the Skackles after one of the friends said that that was the last place that she had seen Martha that night. And whoever answers at the Skackle house uh, says that Martha wasn't there. So around 4 a.m., Dorothy calls the Greenwich police, and they put out a missing persons bulletin. But they didn't search the neighborhood on foot as they would have for a younger child. I get that, yeah, you'd search the neighborhood on foot for a younger child, but still feels like that might have been a good idea. Yeah. But too little too late. Uh, So by noon the following day, so it's Halloween, October 31st, family friends had gathered at the Moxley home to support Dorothy. Her husband was away on a business trip and was like catching a flight to get there as soon as possible. So Dorothy is home as like the solo parent. So family friends are there by noon the next day. Uh, When the doorbell rang shortly before one o'clock, Dorothy opened the door to a neighborhood girl named Sheila McGuire who was sobbing. Sheila said that she thought she had found Martha lying beneath a pine tree in the Moxley's yard on Walsh Lane. And then when, uh, thankfully, someone kept Dorothy from going out to yeah. check herself. Um, in, like, their backyard? or well, the way that this is described is, like, it's in their yard, but it's obviously, like, very spacious. It's not, like cookie cutter like stamped you know like like, here where our entire plot is 700 square feet right exactly um so apparently it wasn't somewhere that would have been like in direct line of sight i mean obviously not for sheila to find her but yeah and also didn't they didn't know how long she'd been there right well i mean who knows so it was martha face down beneath the tree with pieces of a broken six iron golf club laying near i've heard this okay yeah Yeah. (laughs) so Martha was apparently struck so hard that the golf club broke into four pieces, only three of which were discovered at the scene of the crime. The grip part, which might have had fingerprints on it, was never found. This is the story that I've heard in reference to Mischief Night. Oh my gosh. Mischief Night. I have no idea why in my mind that's associated with Detroit. It's wrong. Okay. Interesting. Anyways. Detroit, Connecticut, tomato, tomato. They're the same thing, right? They're basically the same. Um, so the killer used one of the pieces, which had a sharp point as a dagger and stabbed Martha, Martha Moxley through her neck. Like after it was broken? Yeah. Uh, yep. Sorry, Ryan. So the, because, you know, Thomas Gackle is the last person she's seen with, the police look into him. Um, they also look into Kenneth Littleton because it wasn't a secret that like she was at the Gackle residence yeah. at some point in the night, right? They also look into a man named Kenneth Littleton who had started working as a live-in tutor for the Gackle family that oh same my God. day. Right? Live-in tutor. Well, that's, we're talking ritzy each yeah. post, right? So, which that makes sense to me too because you'd be like, what? Is, was here the day of the murder that wasn't right. here the day before right. this, this happened. new guy. Right? So they also look into him. Um, police conclude that Martha was killed shortly after she was seen with Tommy um, and even that the golf club that killed her matched a set belonging to the Skackle family. But that doesn't prove anything, yeah. right? It only creates suspicion. Circumstantial. Was like that club missing from a set that they owned or was it just like ah, somebody else also has the same exact set so it what did i say here so it was from a um 
a set belonging to this, like it okay. matched a set belonging to the Skackles. Doesn't mean that it was theirs, but, and it, I didn't read anything yeah. about like, was this one missing? Got it. Um, so both Tommy and Kenneth have alibis and considering that there are no eyewitnesses or physical evidence from the crime scene, the case languishes. Yeah. Martha had been dead for hours before her body was found. Um, and police cannot pinpoint the time of the fatal assault precisely enough to conclude, um, that only Tommy had the opportunity to kill her. Right. Like it's super suspicious, but not like definitive. Also, the Skackles played golf in their large yard. Like they, they like practice their what is it called? Your short game or whatever. Um, <laughs> I have no idea. You're, you know, you're never. I mean, obviously, that. they're not like you know whacking hitting, them. whacking it. But it's like, wh- what is a short game putting? called? Putting. Sure, thank you. Yes, sports. They're playing putt putt. They're playing putt putt. So the Skackles played golf in their yard, and anyone might have dropped the club outside, and anyone might yeah. have picked it up. Right. So still suspicious yeah. but like there's a lot of like reasonable doubt yeah in there. um and one and and no one that the police interviewed said like yeah i saw tommy with a golf club yeah. that night right so so the case goes cold for more than 20 years holy moly yeah so then in 1991 when another relative of the kennedys william kennedy smith was on trial for rape a rumor circulated that William had been at the Skackle house on the night of Martha's murder. So this rumor turns out to be totally bogus, Mm. but it puts Martha's case back on the public's mind and it gives it new media attention. Yeah. People were soon discussing the case regularly and openly, but there never seemed to be any progress in solving it, even though the Greenwich police announced that they were reopening it. So then in 1996, an author who had befriended Martha's family and had written a book based on Martha's murder um, is contacted by a young man saying that he has important information on the case. So this author's like, okay, like weird that you're reaching out to me, but like her name had kind of been associated as a public figure, like associated with the case, right? So she meets up with this young man and he tells her that in 1991, when, you know, people were talking about Martha's case again, Rushton Skackle, who was Thomas's dad, so okay. the, the patriarch of the Skackle yeah. family, had hired a private detective service in New York called Sutton Associates to investigate Martha Moxley's murder. So basically he was like, my son Tommy is back in the spotlight. I need somebody to get ahead of this, Got which is it. weird. Like it wasn't in 1975 when yeah. he was originally a suspect. It was almost 20 years later when it was back on the public's mind. And dad's like, yo, listen, I'm going to hire this uh, like private investigative team um, to like look into this. Yeah. Right. The agents who were all former detectives or police officers signed confidentiality agreements, never to reveal anything they learned in the course of their investigation, which I think is bananas can they like what if they figure out what happened they can't like can they testify in court i don't think so i mean i don't know how far that works like i like yeah well i guess they get a subpoena like wouldn't they have to but but then again if they figure it out like and they don't report it somebody else is gonna have to figure it out and then right so it's Anyways. crazy. Like I just have a very hard time imagining a police officer or a detective who's like, okay yeah, I'm down that. for this job to sign this non-disclosure about like any number of terrible things I might discover yeah. and then not be able to talk about. And maybe That's there's an nuts. upside there that I'm not seeing, but crazy. Yeah. The upside is, is that Tommy did it and no one will ever know. Right. Right, right, right. <laughs> and I mean, my guess is that the dad is hoping that like, I'll discover that someone else did it, I'll be able to give the cops that information and it'll clear my son. But yeah. then you also run the risk of like being the only one who knows that your son that did your it. your son did it. Yeah. So the things money can do. So anyway, they all sign confidentiali- confidentiality agreements saying that they'll never reveal anything that they learn. Uh, da, da, da. Okay. And during the investigation, Michael Skackle, who was Tommy's brother, I think like a few years younger than him, who had never been a suspect in the murder, he had had an, he had an alibi that he had been at a cousin's house watching a movie at the time of the murder. Mm-hmm. Like no one ever blinked yeah. at him. He changes his story completely when he talks to the detectives 
the private eyes okay. um, in 1991. So almost 20 years after the fact, he changes his story completely. He tells them that, which I don't know why you wouldn't just stick to your original story, but okay. He tells the detectives that he had, sorry, this is about to be gross, that he had climbed a tree outside Martha's bedroom window and masturbated. How old was this kid at the time? I don't know. If Martha's like 15, I think this kid was like 13 or 14. Oh, okay. Um, for some reason, I was picturing him as like eight, and I was like, oh, that would be even weird. worse. Um, okay. And I don't know. It's like, do you tell them this because you know they can't tell anyone? And is it the truth? Or Like, I, I don't get it. Okay. Yeah. So he tells them that he was up in a tree. Like, why would he you- tells the, the people who signed the confidentiality agreement? Yeah. And why would you place yourself that close 20 years later to the murder victim? Yeah. Like, why would you connect yourself to her in any way? Especially when, like, nobody questioned your alibi. Legit, nobody's looking at you, bro. So. Weird. This, this team of investigators, they spend, like, three years, like, looking into this and compile a report. And they present it to Rushton Skackle. It indicates that Tommy, who had been the prime suspect for years, had not killed Martha Moxley. It was Michael who had never been a suspect, who had likely killed her. What? I'm sure nothing was like hard and fast. Like, it's for sure he did it. But it's saying, yeah. like, wasn't Tommy. It, it, it was your it other son. It might have been your other son, Michael. Oh, dang. Rushton is devastated yeah. by these findings, pays the investigators, and stashes the report away. Because he can. Because you can. But the young man who, this is the crazy part, the young man who had been hired to compile the report years after the private investigation, the private investigators had been hired, Uh right? So he's hired after the fact to put all the information together into the report, had not been asked to sign a confidentiality agreement. And so this is the guy who reached out to the author and was like, I have to give this to you. And so she takes it and she gives it to the police. That's like, duh. He why didn't Rushton make him sign the thing? I, it, it, Did, I don't know, but it sounds like just no one thought of it. Like it was years after the private eyes, well, like got sense. hired. Yeah, it, it just seems like an honest mistake. Yeah, um, because they obviously didn't want this information. Like somebody must have lost yeah. their like somebody in the Skackle home who lost ran their, their affairs lost their job. So, in January of 2000, an arrest warrant was issued for Michael Skackle for Martha Moxley's murder, and he surrenders himself to authorities. So, this goes to trial, and the prosecution calls in three former acquaintances of Michael's that he had known from a reform school he had been sent to as a teenager um, at, like, because he was struggling with drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. He related to me that he had been involved with a murder, said one of his schoolmates, saying that Michael had told him he took a golf club out of a bag and was running through the woods and had a blackout. Oh, no. He said he didn't know if he did it. He couldn't remember if he did it. Was he already using, like, drugs at this time, or was it like... I mean, that's at the time of Martha's murder? Yeah. I don't know. I'm just not sure. Then a second alumni of that same program testified, saying Michael had told him he had bludgeoned her after he, after she resisted his advances. Okay, so two different stories. So two different, which, I mean, both of those could be true. Running through the woods with a, well, yeah. Same one is one where he didn't remember yeah. and one where he did, but like both where he's probably a murderer. Yeah. So did I say three? former acquaintances and then I only gave you two snippets anyway that's how that's going to go yep um so despite a lack of physical evidence linking him to Martha's murder because that's all they've got yeah um prosecutors used Michael's confession of being in Martha's tree that night to put him in the area and painted a compelling picture of a troubled rich kid who lost his temper and beat his beautiful neighbor to death after Mm. she rejected him. I think the tale that they told was like, he was mad that she kissed Tommy because he liked her and that's what led to this. So in June of 2002, Michael Skackle was found guilty of murdering Martha Moxley and was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. But wait, Skackle continued to proclaim his innocence and fight his conviction. One of his appeals claimed that his, one of the appeals that he filed right after his conviction was that his lead attorney was incompetent so that he didn't have like a, a good enough defense. They all try that one. They all do. Um, I'm also going to like go ahead and guess that it's more likely that 
your counsel, like it's, it's more likely that a poor person who is assigned a public defender who's juggling 75 cases has an adequate counsel than someone who's related to the Kennedys um, and probably had like, I mean, one case. Right. And also I'm not saying, you know, uh, that could also be true that he didn't have a good lawyer. You know, things happen. Just the chances, the odds. Yeah, the odds. Um, And on, so he's convicted in like 2001. He appeals, appeals, appeals. And on October 23rd, 2013, he was granted a new trial by a Connecticut judge named Thomas A. Bishop, which means that on November 21st, 2013, Skackle was released (gasps) on a $1.2 million bond along with other conditions. They're basically like, you can have this new trial. Until then, we're going to release you on bond. Um, He was to be monitored with a GPS device, could have no contact with Martha Moxley's family, and must periodically check in over the phone and would not be allowed to leave the state of Connecticut unless granted permission. I can think of a lot of black and brown uh, teens who are currently rotting away in jail for having like the smallest amount of pot on them who would not have been granted those things. Which is now legal. Which is now legal. And white people are making a lot of money off of i hate that they released him because like they already proved him guilty well he was granted a new trial based on that appeal so like he so it was like okay you're the prosecution has the opportunity to like try you again for this but we're not going to keep you in jail until then but he's still he's he's guilty and they have to prove his innocence like when you're first being tried, it's innocent until proven guilty, but they already proved him guilty but and I, it's just appealing that. But I think that him saying that he had like, didn't have enough, I think like it wipes the slate clean if you, if, if you prove that your counsel was inadequate. I, I don't know how it works. I mean, obviously that is how it works because that's what <laughs> happened. I'm saying get Emily I'm the phone. Right, she need, we need to talk her all wrong. We need to talk to Connecticut. Um, so blah blah blah. Hello, Connecticut. Hello, Connecticut, please. Uh blah blah blah. So we can't leave the state. So then in 2016, the Connecticut Supreme Court reinstates his conviction. Oh, I just went back to the top of my oh, document. No. Oopsies. So he's in, he's out. Um, so he's released on bail, and then the Supreme Court in Connecticut reinstates like, his murder conviction. Oh yeah, you're guilty. Writing that his conviction was the result of overwhelming evidence presented by prosecutors and that his legal rec- representation had been adequate. So in January 2018, the prosecutor's office asked the court to revoke his bail and return Michael mm-hmm. to prison. Oh, just wait. Oh, no. So they're like, yo, send him back. Then on May 4th, 2018, um, the Connecticut, I think it was the same court, the Connecticut Supreme Court. Like, I don't know how both of these things happened. Okay. Ruled by the same court, whether there was like a shakeup on the court and there was like a new judge or something. They vacate his conviction. What? So let's, let's follow this trail of events. He's convicted. He is granted a new trial. They reinstate his conviction. Then his they just change. Then they vacate his conviction again. Um, so they vacate his conviction and ordered a new trial again, ruling that his defense attorney had quote rendered ineffective assistance end quote when he failed to contact an alibi witness whose name had been provided by Skackle and that as a result Skackle was deprived of a fair trial. So the only way that in my mind I can. Um, I can understand the Supreme Court as like reinstating his murder conviction and then vacating it. Yeah. Like it, it basically like so quickly together is maybe they didn't know about the alibi witness that Skackle had told his defense attorney to contact. Yeah. So like maybe that was a new piece of information to them. IDK. That makes the most sense. That but- does make the most sense to me. But why wouldn't they have like, why wouldn't, his lawyer have been like, yo, we're appealing this because the lawyer was incompetent because he didn't call this alibi witness. No idea. I don't know. Or maybe this is just a rich person who's like, I got to find the loophole here. Yep. Listen, I'm not against rich people. My parents are rich people. Yeah. I'm against rich people using their money to supersede justice. Exactly. So 
they say, blah, 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 you did not have a fair trial. State prosecutors in Stanford still have the power to call for a new trial against Skakel, but at the time of this recording, oh no, uh, November, the year of our Lord, 2019, the state's attorney office has not called for a new trial against Michael Skakel for the murder of Martha Moxley, and he remains a free man. So he's out. No. Although I thought that I heard in this story that there was a theory about some kids saw this group of African-American kids running around with golf clubs that night. Maybe that's another story. I know the story you're talking about. And it's a different story. But it's also involves it involves rich people. I it involves rich people. I I believe it is also involving mischief knife. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard, right? (laughs) Mischief knife. Um it also involves rich people, golf clubs, and And mischief night, maybe. Maybe that's the thing in Detroit that I'm thinking of. Yeah, that possibly could be it. I'll have to look into that story. Maybe we'll have to do that next time. But that is a story of the murder of Martha Moxley. And the weird connection to the Kennedys and the fact that Michael Skakel is a free man. That's nuts. Read the article, Trail of Guilt by Dominic Dunn. And yeah, Dominic Dunn is the, is the author. So the woman who wrote the piece for Vanity Fair is the, dun, the author dun, dun. that the dun, dun, dun is the author that the guy with the report contacted. And was Did like, she write a book? Or she wrote she a just... book long before she wrote this Vanity Fair article. Oh. And so um, she's like deeply involved. Got and it. so it's a really incredibly well done piece. So that is my tale to tell you. Nice. Yeah. I'm so excited about my story. Oh, I'm excited for you to tell me. Tell me This everything. is one of my favorite stories in the whole wide world. Cannot wait. This is the Dietlov Pass incident. Okay. It's not ringing any bells. So, like I said earlier, I took Russian in college. You sure did. And I don't remember any of it. So, this is going to be really fun because there's a lot of Russian in this. Can't wait. So, this is in 1959. USSR. Picture it. It's winter. It's snowy. We're in Siberia. A group of students from the Ural Polytech Institute arrive at the base of the Kolat Siaki mountain. This is a Mansi word. Um, the Mansi were like indigenous people that lived in Siberia. Um, and so this, the Kolat Siaki is um, Mansi for dead mountain. Okay. And this is a mountain that's in Siberia. And so, um, in January of 1959, there's a group of, like I said, 10 students from the Ural Polytech Institute. They're, I think they're all studying engineering, so they're all really smart, really bright, um, and they're all experienced hikers and skiers. And so, they um, head to this mountain. I think I know this one. It's so good. Um, and they're going to go hike and climb the pass. So these are the hikers. I apologize for the way I'm about to butcher these 10 names, but it's Igor Dietlov, Yuri Doroshenko, Ludmila Dubinia, Yuri Krivanyshenko, Alexander Kolevatov, I have these all written out phonetically, so that's why I'm just reading. Good job. <laughs> um, Zinada Kol, Kol Mogrova, Rustem Slobodin, Nikolai Tibo Brino, Semyon, who goes by Alex. <laughs> <laughs> I think his middle name is. I'm not. I uh, never mind. Okay. A, a, not Alexander, another version of Russian Alex. Okay. okay. So Semyon, Zolotarov, and Yuri Yudin. So I'm going to butcher their names even more, and I apologize. Like I said, my Russian didn't stick. So the day before they embark on the trip, they're staying in this little like town called Vishai. 
Vishai. Um, and your Yudin ends up getting sick and staying back. So he doesn't continue on the hike. Um, so they arrive at this little town, January 28th, 1959. And then on February 1st, um, the rest of the group, so without Yuri Yudin, um, start making their way through the pass. Um, and as they're going, there's a huge snowstorm and they have to say, they have to like, okay, we're going to wait out the storm and then continue. So that night they decide to make camp. Um, and instead of walking back a mile to where there's like woods and trees and it's flat ground, they pitch their tent on the slope of the mountain, which is like super weird because like anybody who was an experienced climber would never do that. Like even me, I'm a very inexperienced hiker, climber. I would, I go so far as to say you and I are indoorsy people. Yep. yep. And that seems counterintuitive yeah. to me to do that. Pitch your yep. tent on a slope. So whatever reason they had, they do that. Um, they had this little like oven thing that they set up in their tent. They turned it on. They got comfortable. And then February 12th, um, they're supposed to be back in Vishai and send a telegram home and they don't arrive. And so Yuri is still in this town and he's starting to get worried. Um, and so finally Yuri and their families start a search party. And so February 20th, the search begins and they start by like following the same like hiking route that they have or that they had. And then on February 26th, they find the tent and the tent is like half torn down. It's covered in snow. And it's been cut from the inside. And there's a lit flashlight on top of it. There's a lit... Like the flashlight's on. On top of the tent? On top of the tent. Okay. So we'll come back to all of that. So around the camp, like leading away from the camp, were nine sets of footprints. And they can tell from the way the footprints are that they're barefoot or wearing socks and they're not running so I guess there's like when you run the footprints look different than if you're like walking and taking that your makes time sense. yeah um which is weird because it was like literally a blizzard was happening I guess I don't know I don't know snow so maybe it wasn't really a blizzard but lots of snow was happening why weren't they wearing shoes if they had to cut the tent why were they walking and why would they have to cut oh, the tent from the inside right. rather than someone was coming into the tent and cut it right. open? So they start to follow the footprints and then, the, and then at the edge of the forest, the searchers find the remains of Yuri Krivoshenko and Yuri Doroshenko. So two of the three Yuris. Um, they find their bodies at like the tree line and they're only wearing their underwear. It was freezing what? out. Why were they only wearing their underwear? I don't know. How many bodies do they find in their Just underwear? Just two. Okay. And then above them in one of the trees, like about 16 feet above them, are like some broken branches. We'll come back to that as well. Um, so the searchers continue, and next they find Igor, Dyatlov, Zinada, uh, and Rustem. And they are laying between the tree line and the tent. And they are their bodies look like they're running. So like they look like they literally froze mid-run and then fell over. So what they're thinking is that for some reason they ran from the tree line back to the tent and they like, it was like one, two, three. So we'll come back to that too. Just keep all of this in mind. Okay. I'm back burnering it all. Yep. Yeah. So for these five bodies that they found, the medical examination determines that they died of hypothermia, which makes sense because they're all just wearing their underwear. I forgot to say that about the other three. So like five total were in their underwear. Five total were yeah, just in their underwear. Yeah, hypothermia makes sense. Yep. Um, and they have no other wounds or anything. Doesn't explain why they were in their underwear in the first place. Right. But yeah, it makes sense yep. that they died of hypothermia. Yep. So they continue the search, but it's not until May that they end up finding the rest of them. So further into the woods, they find Ludmila, Alexander, Nikolai, 
and Semyon, who goes by Alex. And none of these bodies had any like external injuries, but once they do the medical examination, they determine that they all had internal injuries that are similar to being hit by a car. There's no roads around here. And does is this all the bodies found now? Yes. Okay. That's so, bizarre. Yeah. Um, Nikolai had some major skull damage. Ludmila had major chest fractures. She was also missing some soft tissue around her face, including her part of her lips, her eyes, and her tongue. Um, she was also missing part of her skull bone that they never found. And they think that that is due to, like, scavengers, but it still doesn't really... Like, usually when scavengers eat, like, the tongue and the eyes, they take more than that. Okay. Um, Semyon also had major chest fractures and was missing his eyes. Oh, my gosh. Alexander was missing his eyebrows. Okay. And then there was high level of radiation on two of these hikers' clothes. What? But not all of their clothes. None of this makes sense. I know. And then after, so after freaking Yuba City Five all over again. Exactly. None of it makes sense. That's how I found the Yuba (laughs) City Five. Um, and so after they find these other bodies, the government ceases the inquest to looking into what happened to them because they. Like, there's no evidence that anyone else was around. So they're like, they didn't get murdered because there's there were no other footprints. There's no, like, weapons or anything around. They're just like, uh, they all died of hypothermia. Even though very clearly these four others had, you know, injuries. Um, so, basically, Russia determined it was an accident. So, there's a lot of theories here. I have 13 theories. <laughs> First, we're not going to talk about all of them. First, I'm going to tell you a few more weird facts about these bodies. So two of the bodies were like their skin had kind of turned orange and their hair was turning gray. So this can happen when you're exposed to Donald Trump. Yep. This can happen when you are Donald Donald Trump. (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry. This can happen. What? If you're exposed to radiation. Okay, which was on two of the... Two of the clothing, but I don't know if it's the same If it was the same people, okay. Also, during like the natural mummification process, this can happen. So, they were in snow, so there's a chance that their bodies were like naturally being mummified. Okay. But only two of them had orange skin and gray hair. All right. Liver mortis, which is like when you die, your blood starts to pool like gravity so like if you're laying on your back your blood starts to pool on your back so the patterns on some of the bodies were inconsistent with the way they were found so like the liver mortis was on the top so like if you died laying on your back you'd get liver mortis on your back and then if you were turned over you'd have the marks on your back okay so like that's how they can determine like how you were laying when you died and if somebody like moved them so some of the bodies had been moved after they died. Um, Around the area where some of like the later bodies were found, so the four who had injuries, there were like burn marks on some of the trees, but there weren't like, it didn't look like there was like a fire because it didn't spread anywhere. Okay. Um, And then in April of 2018, um, a Russian tabloid actually went and exhumed Semyon's remains. And they did another medical examination. Um, the tabloid got permission to exhume his remains? I think the family must have, like... Okay, must obviously have given, given permission. permission. Yeah. Um, so they did another another medical exam, and they determined that, like, yes, the injuries on the body matched that of being hit by a car. But they also tested the DNA, and it didn't match any of his living relatives. What? But... They did a reconstruction of the skull, and it matched a picture of him. So I have no idea what that means. So he was adopted? I have no idea. (laughs) There were, like, some theories that somebody after the war, like, after World War II, like, stole his name. Okay. But the guy who was killed, or the guy who died in the mountains with them, would have been the guy using his name. So it wouldn't have actually been... Semyon, 
So, or this is just the creepiest way anyone yeah. has ever found out that they were adopted. <laughs> I mean, not that he found it out because yeah. he died, but all right. Yeah. So, I'm just going to tell you some of the theories and then okay. I'm only going to talk about a couple. Okay. But I just feel like the theories have to be thrown out. Yeah, there. absolutely. So, one of the most popular theories is that of the Yeti. Sure. It would explain why the branches were broken at the top, mm-hmm. but about nothing else. <laughs> Ryan's dying laughing. Um, the other one is gravity fluctuation. So there's a theory that maybe gravity stopped working there and they fell. As it is want to do, yeah. Um, there was a prison camp nearby called Gulag Prison Camp. And there's a theory that maybe somebody um, broke out of that jail and killed them, but there were no other footprints or anything. Normally, that would feel like the most likely scenario, yeah. but because of all the different ways that these people died and like the different injuries and lack thereof yeah. they have, that Doesn't feels like that's not possible. Another one is a wolverine maybe came and killed them, but again, there's no, no sign footprints of that. or signs. And no like lacerations yeah. or bite marks yeah. or anything like that. Menthol poisoning. Not a lot of evidence of that. Yeah. Um, a stove fire, so maybe the little oven that they had in the side the tent caught on fire and they all ran out, but there were no signs that the tent was burned or anything. And they cut their way out of the yeah, tent. Yeah, they cut their way out. And somehow someone still got internal injuries. Yeah. Okay. Um, a lightning ball. Is that which a thing? sounded mythical to me, but <laughs> I can't tell if it's a thing or if it's still a theory, but it's basically like instead of a lightning strike being like a line, it just kind of makes this ball that floats around. Is this a, a documented phenomena or is this just like I someone couldn't tell? Okay. I don't talk about it. I don't believe it okay. anyways. So, and then one of the most popular theories is an avalanche, but there's no evidence of an avalanche because yeah. they would all be in one spot covered in snow. Right. Um, another one is the, is a Mansi attack but they are a very peaceful people group. So that was immediately ruled out. Yeah. But the Mansi do use these mushrooms, these like hypnotic mushrooms Uh in their rituals. There it is. Yep. That they keep in bags tied up in trees. So one of the theories is that like, that's why the branches were broken. They went and got some mushrooms and Uh then went crazy. Had a bad bad trip. trip, ran away but then what are those injuries about? Maybe they had them, like, got those injuries while tripping balls. Maybe. And that feels like the most likely thing to me. Just wait. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Okay. You solved it? Is this where we find out that you solved this decade's mystery? I so wish. That would so, really put our podcast on the map if I you know, managed if I to solve figure this, this out. Oh, my God. Get to work on it. Okay. I will. Okay. So... One of the most common things that people think happened is these catabotic winds. They're basically like hurricane-like winds that like rush down mountain slopes. Okay. And in 1978, a group of hikers were, were killed by one of these in Sweden. So after this had happened, okay. these hikers in Sweden were killed by these catabotic winds. And I think that's when they were like, hmm, maybe that happened at, in the Dietlov Pass. So I don't understand how it works because I feel like it doesn't make sense because apparently it's just like this wind makes it impossible to stay in the tent. So maybe they like cut their way out because they were like rushing to get out of the tent and then they covered it in snow to keep it from flying away. But I don't understand, like, I guess it's just my ignorance of like, I don't understand these winds. I'm going to go ahead and guess that there are maybe seven people on earth who actually understand these winds. Yeah. So don't feel bad yeah. for yourself. So then the theory is like they ran away from the tent and then created this thing called a bivoic shelter. I know I'm saying that wrong. Basically, it's like if you lay under like boulders, basically. Okay. Um, and that maybe it collapsed on top of... And that's how they got internal injuries? Yeah, but... Why weren't the boulders on top of them yeah, when they, they were found? Yeah, they weren't found under boulders. Okay. Then another theory is infrasound, which is caused by wind that goes around the mountain. So 
it is confirmed that this does happen on this mountain, and it creates a caraman vortex. Basically, it's like a line of like spirals that happen, and it like creates this weird phenomenon that you can't hear, but it causes panic attacks. Interesting. So it's like this weird, I don't know, weird thing. And so the theory is that like maybe it happened, caused them to freak out, and they like ran out of the tent, ran to the trees, and then they were out of like the the area of the infrasound and then like came to their senses and realized they were lost or something. But the reason that they think that the flashlight was on the tent still lit was that they were trying to be able to find their way back to the tent, hmm. which is not something you would do if you're having a panic attack. Right, 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 right. So like if you had to cut your way out of the tent, you're probably not going to leave your flashlight. Right. All right. The last theory this is my favorite. Okay. This is what I think happened. Is military testing. So, in this area, it is confirmed that the USSR was testing this thing called parachute mines, which are basically mines that aren't, like, in the ground. They basically just, like, drop them, and then they explode in the sky and, like, rain debris. Okay, okay. And so, like, 30 miles away from this group's camp, were other groups of campers and they reported seeing these like glowing orange orbs that night and a couple of like people in the mansi tribe also said that they saw that and the group of campers actually got a picture of it i couldn't find it but everywhere i read is that they took a picture of these glowing wow. orange orbs in the sky um so those orange could have been orange orbs could have been the parachute mines and maybe they were too close and they heard the explosions and it scared them and they ran away and then they got lost. Um, but like, there's still some things that Every like, theory, there's still something unexplained. Yeah. That's my favorite theory because I just feel like that's going to happen in Russia. <laughs> like, and yeah. they're going to cover it up. Right, 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 right. No, that feels like, of all the things you talked about, yeah. one of the more likely. So I, like, still doesn't really explain the radiation. Right. Like, some people say that two of the hikers used to work in plants that were known to have radiation. Okay. yeah. But, like, it's not like they came from work to this hike, sure. you know? Sure, So I don't know. So wow. they ended up naming this pass after the leader of the group, Igor Dietlov. And then the uh, February of this year, CNN announced that Russian authorities are going to reopen the case. No way. But they're only considering the possibility of an avalanche or a hurricane. That feels like less of reopening a case yeah. and more and of more it telling of, you what happened. Yeah. Which also, I'm not a meteorologist, but um, hurricane in the mountains? Yeah, I couldn't In tell snow? you how hurricanes worked, but that feels unlikely. Yeah. Also, what's nuts is that I was like looking at pictures of this. In May, when they found the other bodies, it was still snowing. Wow. So this is a place where there's snow 12 months of the year. I almost said 24 months of the year. <laughs> 24, 24 months. whole months of the year. There's snow. Say the name of that pass again. Dyatlov. The Dyatlov Pass. You are it's all about nuts. those unsolved mysteries, girl. I am. Wow. And this is one, I don't even remember where I heard it. It might have been on last podcast on the left. Okay. And it just like, it's everything I love. It's conspiracies. Mm -hmm. It's Russian. <laughs> <laughs> it's retro. It's retro. And I've just been obsessed with it. That's incredible. Since. Well done. Thanks. Very well done. It should be noted that Ryan is not paying attention to our stories because not he is busy all. watching the Laker game on his computer. Well, let me tell you a little bit about this Laker game. I guess this is also a sports podcast. Sports. Sports. Go sports. The Los Angeles Lakers are playing in New Orleans. They're playing the Pelicans. Oh, look at you. This is the first time that um, Anthony Davis is back playing the Pelicans since he left. It's also the first time that uh, Lonzo and Brandon Ingram are playing the Lakers. How since do they you left. know this? Because I am married. Because <laughs> she's Ryan. a good wife. 
Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. You know a few things about sports. Ryan sits through two crime stories a few times a week. Yeah. Mm, that's beautiful. That's that's true love. Wow. It really is. Well, here comes the part of our show where called Detox, where we got to shake off the murder, as it were. Um, got to get it out of our system. Got to get it out of our systems. Like, have you seen those things in Vegas where, like, you can... They have like hydration bars type things. You can not. go and get a hangover IV. That's pretty magical. Yeah. You know something fun? The very first time I've ever been or I ever went to Vegas, I was with Ryan and we were underage mm. and so we couldn't drink. <laughs> what were you doing? We were with friends from school and we were just pretending like we were grown ups and we'd stay out on the strip till like one or two in the morning. Were you visiting Justin Diaz's yes, family? We were. <laughs> <laughs> we a hundred percent were. Um, we should go. We should, you know what's you? It was it was something. We were uh, I believe I coined that trip underage and out of control. Nice. We ate a lot of buffets. Oh was, yeah, that is kind of the only thing to do. Anyway, but now we're at that point of detox. Um, I just thought of this. Unless you have a detox question, no. I tried to Google and my internet stopped working. <gasps> oh no, I'm so sorry. Um. If you could have any unsolved mystery solved for you, oh, what would it be? That's a good one. And it doesn't have to be like the number one top, but like a unsolved mystery. What would it be? The first thing that comes to my to my mind is John Benet Ramsey. Yeah, I mean, as any true true crime lover would, that like, feels accurate. The Dietlove Pass, like, yeah, I want to know the answer, but I have a feeling it's gonna be. Not as good, yeah, as like all the hype is, yeah. And like John Benet Ramsey is just like nothing that they could say would be expected. Like even if it's like, oh, her parents did it, or I think oh, it was the brother, yeah, or the brother did it. Like oh, it was actually the small foreign faction. Like <laughs> <laughs> nothing. Would be expected, I feel like. Yeah, I think it was the brother too, but like if but they... just to have that kind of closure. Yeah. And even if they did like determine it was the brother, yeah. it would still be like... There'd still be things uh, that need to be filled in. Like exactly. there would still be like I's to dot and T's to cross. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I mean, that's a true, that's a true crime answer right yeah. there. That's the holy grail. Do you have the same answer? What do you think? Um, so I thought of this question before I could think of my own answer. Mm, so let's think about that for a hot second. Um, do, 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 can't be John Bonet. Uh, it might be. It Wait. might be Zodiac. Oh yeah, yeah. It might be. Uh, I thought of another one. Ooh, what is it? The Austin Yogurt Shop Murders. Yes, the Austin Yogurt Shop Murders would be a very good one. Honestly. Mm, hmm. Zodiac would be interesting, but Zodiac... It's going to be nobody that we know of. Zodiac would be interesting. Like, Zodiac catches people's attention because he, like, taunted the media and because he wore that crazy mask when he killed people. Um, but also, I think maybe, even though, like, I have opinions on this, maybe I would change my mind to Atlanta child killings. Um, Dang. Because even though, like, I think probably, like, 85% certainty that Wayne Williams did like was the Atlanta child killer, there is a lot to suggest that there are a lot of murders that got like lumped into yeah. Atlanta child killings that like weren't looked into because they happened around the same time and place into like the same type of victims as, yeah. as the Atlanta child killers victims. So there's probably like more there. Did you watch Mindhunter? No. Oh, Emily. I, know. I started it. I've tried it twice, and I don't know why I How, can't get okay, into it. Because it's, it's slow. It's the yeah, first part okay. is slow. Like I'm gonna go ahead and say the first four or five episodes are slow. Yeah, but like give it another shot because then this, you, you I've get heard to the, the second stuff. season. And is second nuts. season is amazing. Second season is about the Atlanta child. Can I just watch the second season, or do I? Have yeah, to have? like there are some things that you'll miss, but like on honestly, like. Hmm. I suggest watching the first season, but you could like read a summary of it and then watch the second season okay. and that might entice you enough to go back go and watch, back the and watch it. Yeah. Because the thing is, is that at this point in my life, like it's going to hook me in the first 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. If, if, Cause I have 
You have that roommate to attend to. Right. I have two hours a week, maybe, that I can dedicate to shows. Right. And honestly, I watch Law & Order. I have to watch SVU. Well, of course. Obviously. So I have one hour a week where I can watch Olivia Benson, Till We Die. No, that makes sense. Olivia Benson for president president 2020. 2020. I'm going to write her name on the ballot. As you should. Or just Mariska Hargitay. Or Mariska Hargitay. Um, Yeah, I would recommend that. Did you listen to the Atlanta Child Killings podcast? I listened to some of it. So here's the thing. It came out when I was pregnant. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. And I lived on a bathroom floor when I was pregnant. Sure. So like I listened to it because I had to listen to something while I was throwing up. Yeah. Or I would lose my mind. So I listened to it, but it didn't really stick in my brain. Sure. So like I know some of the facts about like the bridge and how he like called a girl and she didn't show up. Said or, he called a girl. Yeah. It's it, like having listened to that series and then like watched the second season of Mindhunter. Yeah. It was just, I mean, you wouldn't have to listen to the podcast to watch that, but I just but felt just like added. I knew a lot. And yeah. I just feel like they really did that second season masterfully because that's a really complicated yeah. case. And they did just like reopen some. Oh, nice. It's not like they reopened it because Wayne Williams is still serving yeah. time. But what they're doing is they're going through. Um, old evidence to see if any of the new technology can test it basically like to look into were there some murders like just lumped in that were lumped in um and like the mayor of atlanta who i believe is an african-american woman like gave a really beautiful like press conference about how like she was a child like during that time in atlanta and um anyway so 10 out of 10 would recommend and I just love Payne Lindsay. I love Payne Lindsay too. I could listen to his voice forever. He is magnificent. Yes, yes I do adore him. So that was our detox, which was I like, don't know that served a great detoxy purpose because we wound up talking about more Ryan's murder. shaking his head. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, boss. Ryan, what mystery would you have solved? Doesn't have to be crime. Who's going to win this game? Oh, who's going to win this game? I thought That's... that the Lakers were getting beat pretty bad. Did they make a comeback? There are four seconds left. Here's here's the thing. I don't okay. care. Um, no, the Lakers are doing really good this season. <laughs> 15 and 2? I 100% don't care. Oh. All right. All right. This has been... Re- oh, don't forget to... Um, oh, like, subscribe. I like. Okay, follow us on Spotify. So when you're hearing this, we'll be on Spotify. You can hit, hit follow on Spotify. Um, that helps our numbers. Subscribe follow. on Apple, I- Apple iTunes. Apple iTunes. Apple Podcasts. Um... Comment, follow, follow us on like, Instagram. What is our Instagram handle? Our Instagram is Lightweight True Crime. Um, um, send us your any cool stories that you have. We want to get. Where could they email us? Um, you can email us at lwtruecrime at gmail.com. That's lwtruecrime at gmail.com. Send us some uh, detox questions or any cool stories that you want featured on here. And uh, that was Sarah. And that's Emily. Cheers. Cheers. I know that face. He's been recording, huh? Recording this whole time. Yeah, but I'm also realizing if you guys laugh like you just did, it's going to suck. Why? For everybody, everyone else listening. Because it's loud? Yeah, it's just loud. Ha, ha, ha. Okay. Are we ready to do this? Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm recording. Okay. Oh. Um, that's Sarah. That's Emily. Okay, let's do it again without it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that girl is Sarah.